for each of you for all your work. Yeah. Very grateful. All right, uh, we are now in the seventh in our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, as we uh, look at the church in Laodicea and the letter written to them. Um, I'm going to invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on His throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Faithful Lord, Lord of the Amen. We are so amazingly grateful for Your presence with us. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that Your Holy Spirit is here. Here in our midst. Just as You are here in power in Your Word. And so, Lord, we pray as You are here working in our hearts and in our minds that You will indeed not allow us to leave the same people as who came in because of Your presence and Your work. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's a, an old story that, about two kids who are sitting in a high school auditorium listening to the principal give the welcoming speech for that year. The principal turns to the students and says this, the two greatest dangers that students face are ignorance and apathy. One of uh, those students turns to his friend and asks, Dude, what's ignorance and apathy? The other student, uh, who was quite bored and restless by this point and uh, was eager for the speech to end, turned to his friend and said, I don't know and I don't care. Yeah, you'll be telling that joke later, I know. I, uh, I believe that uh, the principal was absolutely right. 
and not only in the area of education, but he is absolutely right when it comes to the area of being a church. Two of the greatest tools that Satan uses to deaden the impact of, the, of Christ's church are boredom and apathy. You know, uh, many sociologists have noted that in the past 50 years, one of the most growing complaints that Americans have is boredom. We live in a time and place where entertainment and distraction is available to us at the push of a button or the touch of a screen. You know that we today consume more entertainment in one day on average than Americans consumed a hundred years ago in one month. Let me, uh, let me repeat that. I don't think it had quite the impact that I intended. We today consume more entertainment in one day on average as Americans than Americans did a hundred years ago in one month. And yet apathy and boredom, complaints, are higher now than at any other time in recorded history. Why is it? You know, Dr. Richard Winter, in his book, I think, has many of the answers to that question. His book is, uh, and I encourage you to read that and pick it up, it's called Still Bored in a Culture of Entertainment. And he addresses many of these issues, especially ones that are vital for us as a church to understand. You see, the very culture of entertainment, which we think will somehow alleviate our boredom, actually contributes to it in profound ways. He uh, quotes Dr. Jean Vaith, who uh, writes this, Boredom is a chronic symptom of a pleasure-obsessed age. When pleasure becomes one's number one priority, the result, ironically, is boredom. Henry uh, Fairley, in an important essay on the subject, also writes, So we whiffle away our lives with no real purpose or strenuousness. We will ride to, bear, to paradise on a golf cart. I think that statement is very, clear, very true for us in our day and age. You know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 put it this, this way, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, in the late... 1980s, many Silicon Valley high-tech millionaires achieved their dreams and were able to retire at a very early age. John McLaren, writing in the London Sunday Times, wrote this, They all went down the same path. They acquired vast houses in swanky neighborhoods, Ferraris and Mercedes, cute personal trainers, serious golf coaches, and copies of luxury hotels of the world. For me, it was like watching a very ornate clock run down. Around 15 months later, 
with no more toys left to buy, they stared out over their manicured lawns and realized to their horror that they were bored out of their skulls and that another 40 years of this lay ahead. Last week we saw the church just before this. It was the church of Philadelphia. It was a poor, small, weak church. If you missed the sermon, I encourage you to listen to it online. Listen to the whole series, I hope. Now that church in Philadelphia wasn't much by our standards or the standards of that day. Yet Jesus has nothing but positive to say about them. And even urges them to move out in evangelism as His Spirit is actively and providentially going ahead of them, opening doors of salvation in the lives of people in their community. But this week, this week is something quite different. Well, this church at Laodicea which was just 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. But this church was in many ways the exact opposite of the last church. See, geographically, they weren't far from each other. And here is the warning. The warning for churches like ours that is much more like Philadelphia. The warning is that it isn't too far down the road before one can become like Laodicea. See, the church of Laodicea was in a city that was one of the richest, one of the richest commercial centers in the ancient world. In fact, they were so rich that despite the fact that they had a severe and catastrophic earthquake in A.D. 61, they refused the financial assistance that was offered by Rome and they chose to rebuild entirely on their own. See, this time Jesus describes himself, as you see at the beginning of this uh, letter, he describes himself as the Amen, the faithful one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. He is, moving, he is the moving cause behind all things. In fact, in Isaiah 65, verse 16, God is referred to as the God of the Amen. It's Hebrew for the word truth, affirmation, or certainty. Whatever God says is true and certain, and therefore, He is the God of the Amen. When Amen is said at the end of a prayer, or that statement is to be sealed as certainty of what has been said. He has the idea of being firm, fixed, certain, faithful, unchangeable. And when it's used here to describe Jesus, He is affirming His deity. He is fully God. And He is completely true. He is certainty and faithfulness in and of Himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes, For all the promises of God in Him, that is, in Jesus, are Amen. All God's promises are sure, guaranteed, and affirmed in the very person and finished work of Jesus on the cross and in the bodily resurrection. All the purposes, the plans, and promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They are certain and sure in Jesus. He is always perfectly faithful 
See, in the last letter, remember what I told you? The description of Jesus was consistent with the nature of the church because the entire message to that church was a positive message. In this case, the nature of Jesus is the opposite of the church because the message is entirely negative. This is, by the way, the most severe reprimand of all the letters we've seen. Now, uh, point one on your outline is this. For those of you who like to keep notes, you'll find uh, an outline on, uh, in the middle of your bulletin there and an insert. Here is point one. Jesus, in His very being, is always faithful. In His very being are all the promises of God fulfilled. He is the Amen. He is the One who causes all things to come to completion. He, in His very being, is completely reliable. All the purposes of God are fulfilled in the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but all the significant people in my life, no matter how faithful, all of them have had failings. All of them are sinners. All of them have weaknesses. It's therefore nearly mind-boggling to consider a person who is always 100% faithful. Yet that's indeed who Jesus is in His very being and how He always acts. And uh, by the way, this is in contrast to the church at Laodicea. Look at the way they're described here in this passage. They are, call, they are called lukewarm. Well, what does that mean? He gives us a very vivid description that the Laodiceans would understand very well. And uh, I myself, having uh, grown up in Colorado, understand it pretty darn well as well. So let me see if I can illustrate this for you. As you uh, drive around in the Colorado mountains, as Lynn and I have uh, done on many occasions when we lived there, you'll see signs for vacation areas where on the signs is, is advertised natural hot springs. The Laodicea, as described in other ancient literature, is well known for their natural hot springs. And so Jesus says, if they were hot, just like your hot springs, then he could take a bath. Because then they would be useful. But they're not. Now the city was also well known for their refreshing cold streams that flowed down from the mountain, as well as Colorado. So Jesus says that if they were cold, just like from the mountain streams of the city, he could take a drink. But the reality is, is that they are lukewarm. They are tepid, worthless, nauseating. So he will literally, and this is a very strong word in the Greek, barf them out of his mouth. Point two on your outline is this. Lukewarm water was stale. It was worthless and less than worthless. It would probably make one sick if they drank it. This was the problem with this particular church. He was literally making Jesus sick, and so he barfs them out. See, here's a rich church, much like the city in which they were situated. 
They were self-sufficient. They were proud and smugly complacent. They did not see a need for Jesus. They'd become relaxed and passive. You see, in other words, they had large savings accounts. They saw all their needs as being met by their own resources. They saw outreach and evangelism as something they could accomplish by their own money, by their own business techniques, by their own good church practices. They believed in themselves and their own abilities and their resources to accomplish the building of the kingdom of God on their own. See, to all outward appearances, they simply sensed things and understood things by their five senses. But they didn't sense spiritual realities. See, Jesus describes them as spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the exact opposite of what Laodicea and the church was, was known for and what they believed to be true about themselves. See, on an economic and professional level, Laodicea was well known for their banking, clothing, and medicine. They, much like their city and culture, saw themselves as good with money, which gave them strength, just like their banking and financial industry. The church was likely made up of many of those in the financial sector, the clothing sector, the medical sector. It's therefore really no surprise that they came to the place where they began to rely on their own expertise in the areas to provide for the perceived needs of their people. It's the default position. It's the comfortable position. This is their expertise. This is what they know how to do. And so they simply applied the principles that they learned from those fields to the needs of the church. You see, ultimately, the fundamental problem is that they saw the needs and issues in the church as ones that could be observed and solved with our five senses. While they likely believed the truths about Jesus, they didn't see those truths as applying to their own lives on a daily basis and even to the needs of their church. They didn't seek spiritual solutions to spiritual problems. They sought worldly solutions. Things that they could solve on their own with the skills and knowledge that they had acquired in their business lives. They did not deny God with their mouths. They hadn't become atheists in doctrine or in their statements of faith on their website. But they had become functionally and practically atheists. It isn't that they believed that God couldn't work among them, but in their actions they denied the reality of a providential and sovereign Jesus. That's why Jesus tells them that He stands at their door and knocks. If they'll just let Him in, He will come and fellowship with them. The reality of Christ's work in their midst was simply not one that they even wanted to consider. They didn't need to bother Jesus with their issues because they were rich and believed that they really didn't need a thing. Sadly, the American church 
is often thought of and spoken of by the rest of the church around the world as the Laodicean church. As uh, Dr. Winter, an important leader in the missions movement of the last century once put it, we have not been designed to find meaning in the things that can be experienced with the five senses. Living as if our sole purpose could be found this way is like a fish trying to live on land or a bird trying to live underwater. Point three on your outline is really meant as a caution for us. The Laodicean church had become complacent in their spiritual life and they slipped back into living their lives as practical atheists. They lived their daily lives as if God did not exist and they operated their church as if Jesus were not the head. How, uh, how would this be happening? Well, it happens as most of these tragedies do. It came upon them gradually as they started to take their spiritual life for granted. It was their apathy. You know, in the, uh, in the history of the Ku Klux Klan, I think there's an important lesson for our church and, and for our culture. Did you know that the KKK was founded by a small group of six young and quite intelligent former Confederate soldiers who had no jobs, who were bored, and were apathetic? The Klan's purpose was a social attempt to alleviate their boredom. Their only intention was to, and I quote here from one of their leaders, have fun make mischief, and play pranks on the public. Their costumes were old sheets, raided from the home that one of them was house-sitting at. Wearing their ghost disguises, they played pranks on the, in the neighborhood. And the, the former slaves became popular targets because they were thought to be largely uneducated, superstitious, and gullible. Now, of course, uh, Later, the Klan became notorious for their racial and religious violence, rape, assault, and murder. But it didn't begin that way. This pattern of gradual degeneration from what in the beginning were just foolish misdemeanor-level pranks enacted to alleviate boredom gradually developed into cruelty and horrible evil. This is common. This kind of pattern is one that can be seen often today, even in news reports. You know, uh, a week after my brain surgery three years ago in June, I read the report of an Oklahoma teen who police had shot and killed, who said, the police said shot and killed an Australian baseball player because he and his friends were bored. That was the only reason he gave. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Even more recently, I read about an, about an 18-year-old Chansey Allen Luna who was convicted of first-degree murder of, the year, of that year in June after he shot 22-year-old Christopher Lane all because of boredom. See, the truth and reality of God lays lightly upon our country today 
And sadly, the truth and reality of a sovereign, living, active Jesus Christ lays lightly on much of the American church today. It's true. But this came on gradually as the church became more and more comfortable, more and more complacent, more and more apathetic. Jacques Ellul wrote that the people today are victims of emptiness, devoid of meaning, busy, but emotionally empty. Now our text here gives us the solution to this. Jesus says, come, buy refined gold. See, the desire, He desires to give gifts that cost no money. This is an open invitation, an intimate invitation for the church. And Jesus is referencing here Isaiah chapter 55 where we read, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. We've gotten to point four now on your outline. Point four is really about three important keys to battle spiritual apathy and boredom and instead to live with vitality and purpose. The subpoint A there is practice the presence of Jesus in your life. He is knocking. Will you open the door? He wants to be a constant and intimate part of your daily life. Not just for a couple hours on Sunday morning. I encourage you to read a small classic Christian book written by a, a Carmelite monk in the 17th century. Yeah, that kind of book can still have impact. It had great impact on my life. The book is called Practicing the Presence of Christ by Brother Lawrence. And you can find modern translations of it that are very good out there today. I think it's even freely available in digital version online. I encourage you to read it. Begin to practice that. Live it out. Recognize that the mundane parts of life is exactly where and when we need to open the door and invite Jesus in. Vitally true, not just for each of us as individuals, but for the life of our church and the life of our community. Point B on there in your outline is delight in and be thankful for the simple and ordinary of the created world. Stop consuming modern entertainment all the time. And instead, delight yourselves in what God has created, even as you are busy practicing the presence of Jesus in your life. Or Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes 2, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? 
We delight in these things while we consistently practice the presence of Jesus Christ, speaking to Him about the awe and wonder of what He has created. Subpoint C is this, and it's simple. Be passionate about your relationship with Jesus. As you practice His presence, practice remembering who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing. Now, some time back, I was watching a prominent evangelical pastor whom I've heard and appreciated many times in the past years. He spent 45 minutes preaching about the nature of the millennium, the Antichrist, the rapture, etc. This was, by the way, just one in a series on the end times. And honestly, I was very, very disappointed in that message. So as uh, we continue through the book of Revelation, I will not be uh, having the same message that he did. Not merely that he interprets the book of Revelation narrowly, but that he misses the vital message in this amazing book. And this is, by the way, the pivot point of this book as we have, are moving away from these letters to the churches. And now, this message is for all the church and each generation until Christ returns bodily. See, what he missed is what John is communicating so very clearly to this church and to us as a church and to all churches from then on till now. See, here is the message. It's pretty simple. We live our lives with our five senses. We do. While we're on this earth, we don't get to see spiritual realities. And what John is doing is pulling back the curtain, allowing us to gaze intently at spiritual truths and realities which uh, I really hope we'll continue to see in this amazing book. This will be the major theme of the rest of the book. Jesus pulling back the curtain between our earthly five-sense reality and giving us a glimpse of spiritual realities that are going on simultaneously to what we sense with our five senses. Let me give you just one example of uh, what we are going to be seeing. While we were singing and worshiping our Savior, we really didn't see with our five senses that along with us, the angels and the church triumphant, that is, those believers who have gone ahead of us to heaven, those believers who are, and those angels are worshiping together with us in heaven. The spiritual reality is that we are merely joining with them around the throne in triumphant worship of the Lion who is the Lamb of God who was slain. This is a very important theme in the book. So too the message to the Laodiceans who saw only with their five senses that they were rich, that they had acquired wealth and didn't need anything. But Jesus pulls back the curtain and tells them the spiritual reality but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear 
so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Let me give you another illustration. One of the most amazing films of the last few decades was Schindler's List. How many of you have seen the movie Schindler's List? It's really a quite remarkable movie. And in that remarkable movie, there's a remarkable scene. It's a scene when Schindler visits some of the Nazi leaders at a train station in the middle of summer in the scorching heat. The train cars pull up, filled with Jews heading off to torture, be tortured and exterminated in prison camps. And they're crying for relief from the unbearable heat in the cars. Do you remember the scene? Remember the scene when he gets a hose and starts watering down the train cars? See, it's only Schindler that is moved by their plight. The rest of them are completely apathetic to the realities around them. They simply don't care, and they don't want to know. And their apathy makes them complicit in the horrors that are playing out right before their eyes. See, that's the final result of apathy. Standing by and not caring or simply blind to realities. Yet every day, people around us are dead in their sins. Even many church people, what I like to refer to as churchians, And the question is, is do we even care? Do we know or care that so many around us do not have a relationship with Jesus and are on the wide road that leads to eternal destruction? If your answer is no or not really, then then you have unfortunately started down the short road from Philadelphia to Laodicea. If you find yourself walking down the path toward apathy, then I urge you, as Jesus urges you here in this letter, to rouse your spiritual senses. It's time to be awakened, to pull back the curtain and observe spiritual reality. It's time to answer the knock on our doors because ultimately it is the church doors at Laodicea that is being pictured here time to invite Jesus in, for it's only in Him that we have real life and real vitality. It's only in Him that we will live out the vision that God has given us. It's time for us to be the Schindlers with spiritual death all around us. Where is your spiritual Schindler's list of daily prayers? seeking for open doors for the gospel that Jesus might open. Do you have a daily prayer Schindler's list? At about uh, 3.20 a.m. on March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese, a 28-year-old manager of a bar in Queens, New York, returned to her quiet residential neighborhood. 
parked her car in a lot next to her apartment building and began to walk the 30 yards through the lot to her door. Noticing a man at the far end of the lot, she paused. When he started toward her, she turned the other way and tried to reach a police call box half a block away. You younger people don't even know what that is, I'm guessing. The man caught and stabbed her. She started screaming that she'd been stabbed and screaming for help. Lights went on in the apartment building across the street. Windows open. One man called out, let that girl alone. The assailant shrugged and walked away. Windows closed and lights went out. The assailant returned and attacked Genevieve again. This time she screamed, I'm dying, I'm dying. This time lots more windows opened and lots more lights went on. The assailant walked to his car and drove away, leaving Miss Genovese to crawl along the street to her apartment building, and somehow she managed to drag herself inside. The assailant returned a third time. He found Genovese on the floor at the foot of her stairs and finally succeeded in killing her. During those three separate attacks over the course of 35 minutes, not one of Kitty Genovese's neighbors tried to intervene. No burly neighbor picked up a baseball bat and dashed outside to save her life. Worse than that, of the more than 30 people who saw at least one of the attacks and heard her screams and her pleas for help, not even one of them called the police. After much deliberation, and one phone call to a friend for advice. One man finally urged another neighbor to call the authorities, which she did. Police arrived in two minutes after her call. But by then, of course, it was too late. Interviewed afterward, the residents admitted, sometimes sheepishly, sheepishly I didn't want to give, get involved or I didn't want my husband to get involved. One of them said he was too tired to call the police and had gone back to bed. Several couldn't say why they hadn't helped. Many of them said they'd been afraid to call. They couldn't say why. Within the safety of their own homes, they had been afraid to call the police, even anonymously. I'm guessing many of you have heard this story before. That incident is likely the most the defining moment of urban apathy in the later half of the 20th century. When it happened, many thought that the incident's shocking, bizarre, but it's not typical of the way people respond. It was the kind of thing that would only happen in a big, bad place like New York City. Right? Here's the point. When the spiritual curtain was pulled back at Laodicea, it was clear. It was clear what the spiritual reality was. Apathy. Now, I don't believe Parkway is Laodicea. I believe that this church is a whole lot more like 
the church in Philadelphia. But it doesn't take long to travel from one to the other. And it doesn't take long for any church to become Laodicea. Let's pray together. Gracious, loving God, the truth is, is that in my own individual life, there are times when I am much more like Laodicea than I am Philadelphia. Much more apathetic. Apathetic to the re- spiritual realities that are going on around me. The spiritual death that is all around. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for my apathy in the race that you have given me to run. Forgive me for failing to recognize the spiritual truths and reality all around us. There is a wide road, a big train cart that is filled with those who are heading toward destruction. And I have been apathetic to that truth. Lord, I pray that that is not true of me going forward, of me today of us as your people here at Parkway. We are enlivened by the visions of of spiritual realities. And you're calling upon us to love people to real life in Jesus. To show them the narrow path. The path that leads to life and life everlasting path that you have placed each one of us upon, that you have called each one of us apart, that you have shown us your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, and your grace.